Good evening. Um, my name's Rob Bowman. I'm the director of program at Arnolfini, and um, I'm delighted to uh, welcome you all to this Art in the City talk uh, by Shazad Daywood. I hope I pronounced that right. Daywood? Dawood. Um, actually, that belies the fact that I've known Shazad for quite a long time, but I don't usually use your surname. Um, having met him in about uh, 2008, I think we decided, 2008, 2009, um, and spending quite a lot of time talking about a project that he'd done then with an arts organization called Wising Arts, um, which was called Feature, which I was, thought was an extremely interesting project, and I've been following his work um, on and off, and we've been intersecting through conversations ever since then, so over a number of years, um, and uh, been very interested to see some of his work, which has included film, but also um, encompasses uh, other mediums, from sculptural mediums to painterly mediums and other forms besides, and I think he'll tell you more about the nature of that work and his interest in uh, well, the medium film as a way of exploring time and alternative realities. Um, Shazad is, he's told me he's going to talk to you about an exhibition that he did recently at Timothy Taylor Gallery, which is called Kalimpong, and use this as a way of talking about his approach to making work, and I think it's going to be fascinating, so uh, please join me in welcoming Shazad. Good evening, everyone. I'm going to sit, if that's okay. Can you all hear me okay? Yeah. I prefer to sit. I think it's more, more informal. Um, as Rob said, I'm going to, I just um, decided I was going to talk about one, one project tonight. I thought it might be a, I don't know, I just wasn't feeling kind of doing the kind of overview thing. And I thought it might be more revealing to talk about how, how I sort of focus in on things. Um, you know, a lot of my projects, I always see them as going down a rabbit hole, you know, and it can be a bigger or smaller rabbit hole, and that doesn't mean that one is more or less important, but it just sort of how long I get lost down them, really. Um, and this is, you know, probably the, yeah, it's the most recent sort of um, rabbit hole. Kalimpong, um, for those who don't already know, is a small town in the Indian Himalayas. And I first came across Kalimpong as a teenager. I think I was probably about 15. Uh, and I was, one of my heroes was Alexandra David Neal. And that's, uh, that's her in pink there. Alexandra David Neal was a French, Franco-Belgian uh, adventurer, explorer, kind of all-round quite amazing um, and iconic lady who was, um, who was the first... Um, woman to enter Tibet um, for more than 200 years. This is in the 1920s. And um, she'd been a theosophist in France before her adventures and escapades. And uh, she talked about meeting, uh, first meeting the then Dalai Lama, the 13th Dalai Lama, so the previous one to the current incarnation, outside of Kalimpong uh, in about 1912. And Basically, um, I'm just trying to remember the whole sequence of events and which book. It comes from her book. There's a book she wrote called Magic and, Mi Magic and Mystery in Tibet, where she talks about her meeting with, a, with the 13th Dalai Lama and then how she goes off into the mountain ranges above Kalimpong and meets various monk sorcerers called Naljorpas who perform kind of amazing feats of, of, uh, of esoteric magic but they live in, in caves. And, you know, um, I remember that image sticking with me from, from when I was a teenager, this image of these sort of caves dissolving into kind of, uh, into kind of alternate realities, as, as Rob mentioned. And, you know, f for me, I like to think of, of an exhibition or a project, I don't, you know, as a kind of series of alternate realities. So when I approach a project, I'm often thinking of it as a, so this is actually the cover of a book I did to go with the exhibition. And I th I'm really interested in, this, in a book as a site of exhibition. So it's not just a gallery, it's a book, it's a set of ideas, it's a set of writing, it's a set of conversations. And for me, that's what makes something really kind of rich and worth getting my teeth into. Um, 
So that's Alexandra David Neal, dressed as a Tibetan beggar uh, when she snuck over the border uh, from India into Tibet uh, for the first time. She was to sort of sneak over the border between India, Tibet, China numerous times um, over the coming years. And, you know, Kalimpong is this sort of fascinating place because, um, sorry, I'll get on to that in a second. It's, it's like a kind of uh, Casablanca or Shanghai of its day. There's, it's sort of um, one of those places that just seems to kind of have a much greater impact on world affairs than it should for somewhere you've possibly never heard of. Um, Kalimpong was um, basically it was already the site of um, the kind of great game in the 18th, 19th centuries between Russia and Britain for for kind of access to China and and trade routes and resource routes, and later it would become you know a, a kind of even more contested space with the Chinese invasion of Tibet and the various politics that came came around with that. But more on that in a minute. Um, so this is what I kind of started to do with Alexandra. So the pink image of her on the cover of the book is not a real object. It's a it's a it's a virtual virtual sculpt. Something I make like a, I, I sculpt in oh, interesting noises. The interference of ghosts. Um, I'm quite interested in this sort of line between the real and the virtual, and in a way, this story was a really nice way to look at it because rather than thinking of virtual, the virtual as a kind of recent thing. A lot of new media theory talks about the virtual as if it's and uh, as if it's just kind of related to VR technology and and the digital. And I kind of thought that um, talking about Kalimpong was a really nice way to think about the virtual as something that's a few thousand years old, because the whole that whole region. Um, across sort of Nepal, Bhutan, um, Tibet, India, is a center for esoteric Buddhism. And esoteric Buddhism has been talking about reality being a hologram for, for a very long time, much longer than a lot of recent theory. But I was interested as well in, in this idea of parallel times coexisting. So I started to sculpt um, Alexandra David Neal um, in multiple ages. So the pink one is her the sort of middle of her life and then I sort of started to kind of put a young Alexandra and an old Alexandra together to think of her you know do we according to quantum mechanics you know all all time is concurrent and interestingly quantum mechanics and an early kind of both Hindu and Buddhist mysticism talk about time time being concurrent concentric parallel simultaneous and I wanted to kind of have Alexandra in conversation with, with someone else. So I have this sort of weird way of working where I'm working on a book and the same time I'm working on the sculptures, the same time I'm working on a larger exhibition. And I wanted to have this sort of sculpture that I was working up of Alexandra David Neal in conversation with someone. So I had a short list from the kind of actual stories around Kalimpong, um, but then I decided to commission the first writer for the book. So I commissioned a... Uh, a French writer, a friend of mine, who it turned out was um, was brought up in a Buddhist household and actually has the same astrological birth chart as Alexandra David Neal. I didn't know that when I commissioned her. But I commissioned her to write a sort of, uh, somewhere between fiction and and a kind of, uh, and, and fact about Alexandra. And she came up with this whole story in the book, which is the opening text in the book, which is, kind of like a story about Alexandra David Neal journeying to Kalimpong that kind of covers past, present, and future. And she made the central other character in the book, uh, this chap, who was called Ekai Kawaguchi. He was a Japanese Buddhist monk who also, interestingly, before Alexandra David Neal, also crossed the border in secret from Japan um, into Tibet well, via, uh, via China. But he felt that Japanese Buddhism was, wasn't rigorous enough and he wanted to kind of go and sneak across the border into Tibet for a more rigorous induction into kind of uh, esoteric Buddhism. So, and interestingly, even in the 20s, well, in the 10s, 20s, early part of the 20th century, when they met, 
they are, although they were both sort of seekers after kind of enlightenment and truth and, and mysticism, there was all sorts of politics going on in the backdrop of Kalimpong. So actually, there were not one but two Ekai Kawaguchis crossing the border. Uh, there was another chap called uh, Yasu Natsura who was a Japanese agent who would masquerade as Ekai Kawaguchi to get access into Tibet, but he was actually a Japanese agent um, at the time. And you can imagine in ahead of the um, Second World War and the whole situation in Manchuria, there's a, there's a whole kind of politics there. But I'm just going to go on quickly just to show you how the research sort of evolved. So this is a spread from the book. So you've got a young Ekai bust evolving, which is a digital sculpt where I use the color masks just to kind of be able to show the contours. So that's almost a sort of formal device. And he's, in the book, you know, he's, he's cut out and placed on, a, on an image of contemporary Kalimpong. And then on the right, you've got the sort of developing quantum busts of Alexandra and Ekai uh, on these plinths that I started to develop where they actually started to become part of the mountainous region of, uh, of the Himalayas uh, themselves. And then behind them, you've got paintings that I started to do on a kind of false wall, but the paintings are of these kind of cave interiors that had become sort of abstracted in my mind from actual caves. And I started to think about the magic that was going on in the caves and how the caves, cave walls would start breaking down and reality itself would start to break down. So behind the paintings, you've got this sort of digital pattern that you see repeating, which was in turn a wallpaper because I wanted to make the gallery an unreal space. So this was something I called a tantric wallpaper using a, a sort of tantric form repeated in this quite digital way to kind of play with ancient contemporary digital. And that's a sort of translation of it into the actual space of the gallery. So this became an actual wallpaper and I worked with um, a textile factory to print it. So it was a sort of fabric wallpaper, uh, but that used the kind of latest in digital printing techniques to create the kind of neon pink. Um, it's not as good as if you see it in real life, but I, I spent ages kind of in the textile uh, factory trying to get uh, the dyes, the neon dyes right, so that, because I also sometimes work with neon, um, and I'm very interested in how it affects your perceptual field so that, so that if you're looking at something, it, it destabilizes your retina. I'm interested in how neon or a sort of sigil or symbol or icon actually invades your retinal field and then you see an after image of it when you turn away. I don't know if that slide can, I don't think a slide can really do that, but you know, if you want, you can keep looking at it and looking away. But I wanted then the paintings on top to kind of break down uh, as well, so you know, you've got orange and yellow caves with these sort of black negative spaces that then feed back into the kind of uh, the black ground of the wallpaper. And then we get onto a kind of later politics. So, you know, while I started on Kalimpong in the early part of the 20th century, Kalimpong be became really kind of significant again um, around the time of the Chinese invasion of Tibet. So in this picture, you have the current Dalai Lama in the center. You have Zhao Enlai, the premier of China at the time, and Nehru, you know, the leader of post-independence India. And interestingly, um, India, in a kind of process of appeasement, covered up for the longest time the Chinese invasion of Tibet and prevented news of it spreading into the, into the wider world. Um, and the Dalai Lama at that time was, was kind of being instrumentalized as a, as a puppet ruler by the Chinese. And interestingly, you think, well, where does the Yeti come into this? So weirdly, there was some really interesting stuff going on in, in Kalimpong in the 50s and 60s. So while China was invading Tibet, um, the US, uh, or the CIA more correctly, were, were conducting all sorts of covert operations to train and, and supply Tibetan guerrillas resisting the Chinese. And interestingly, it was very much that the, the, the CIA took the place of, of, uh, of Britain and, um, and the Chinese took the place of the Russians. And there was basically, there was a whole, there was a point 
a high point at the end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, where Nehru himself denounced Kalimpong as a nest of spies because centered in, in Kalimpong, you had um, CIA, KGB, a few British colonial agents, Chinese agents, Tibetan guerrillas, and a few kind of hangover Brits from the colonial period, and the odd Japanese. So it was all going on. And what kind of makes that particular moment really, really, uh, or what makes it really exciting for me, it might not be for you, is that at the same time as all of this stuff is going on, um, um, so if you see the book on the left, it's by a, a chap called Lauren Coleman, and the book is about Tom Slick and the search for the Yeti. Tom Slick was a Texan oil millionaire, if you can believe that with a name like that. I mean, it's quite, quite fantastic. Um, Tom Slick, as well as being an oil millionaire, was one of the founding fathers of, of the science of cryptozoology, which, which hadn't been named at the time, but cryptozoology, for those who don't know, is the search for, for sort of semi-mythical animals or beasts. And Tom Slick, while he was at university, had, had gone off on expeditions looking for the Loch Ness Monster. And beginning in the 50s, he funded three expeditions to search for the Yeti in the mountain ranges above Kalimpong. And what became really interesting, I talking, I mean, this is what I mean about getting lost down a rabbit hole. So f in the research for this project, um, well, actually, I should say that while, I'd, while Alexandra David Neal had been a hero of mine in my teens, I came back, Kalimpong came back to my attention in probably my mid-30s when I started investigating Tom Slick. And this was all bubbling away before I sort of actually started making this show book project. Um, and I really do get stuck down rabbit holes. And um, what became really interesting as I was doing more and more research was to kind of find out that some of the personnel on Tom Slick's Yeti expeditions were also named in redacted CIA documents as being involved in the training and supplying of Tibetan guerrillas working at Against, fighting against the Chinese occupation. And what became really interesting at a certain point, I don't know how I stumbled on it, but the same personnel appeared in Tenzing and Hillary's uh, expedition, successful expedition to climb Everest. So suddenly all these really kind of, you know, quite separate things had, these, had this sort of common thread that actually the same people were operating in all of these things. And weirdly all, I mean there were some great CIA documents where just the names were left of these people and everything else is sort of blacked out and you've, it just became really fascinating to start to speculate um, whether the Yeti's real, whether it's all a CIA cover-up, there's other potential links between Tom Slick and the CIA but it's um, and I'm just trying to think about which Yeti expedition to talk about, so Yeti expeditions 2 and 3 are particularly interesting um, Yeti expedition Two. Yeah, let's start with two. So Yeti Expedition Two, um, uh, a man called Peter Byrne, who's actually a sort of quasi-mercenary from New Zealand and, and is on all three of um, Slick's Yeti Expeditions, is charged with retrieving um, a, a finger bone, a Yeti, an actual Yeti finger bone from the Pangboche Monastery in Nepal. So this chap, bottom right, is, was the then abbot of the Pangboche Monastery. And the Pangboche Monastery in Nepal was the, had one of the only known Yeti relics. So what he's holding in his hand is an actual, a supposed Yeti scalp. And the Pangboche Monastery had a Yeti scalp and the sort of skeletal forearm and hand of a Yeti. And while one of the other members of the expedition distracted the abbot, Peter Byrne took out a specially prepared human finger bone and swapped it for a finger bone of the Yetis. And he and his brother then managed to get over the mountains from Nepal into India with this covert, clandestine Yeti finger. And they were very nervous about getting it past Indian customs. And it turned out that Tom Slick's uh, very good friend, the actor Jimmy Stewart, was uh, happened to be at the same time in India doing a promotional tour of his latest film. 
And so, and interestingly, Lauren Coleman, who wrote the book in one of the previous slides, confer got it confirmed from Jimmy Stewart before he died that, that yes, this in did indeed happen. The Yeti finger bone was smuggled out in Mrs. Stewart's lingerie case from India to London, where it went through testing at, um, I think it was at, uh, at Imperial College, and it was, the tests were inconclusive. So that's quite interesting. What becomes really interesting um, is that the third and final Yeti expedition is widely rumored to have been uh, a cover for for the CIA operation that managed to get the Dalai Lama out of Chinese-occupied Tibet. And while that's not proven, what's interesting in all the documents I've seen is that there's enough stuff blacked out to actually almost point to the fact that that is true. Um, there's lots more on all of that, uh, on all of those uh, subjects. I didn't want to kind of get too bogged down in it because the research is is endless and fascinating. It was one of the first times I actually had to stop researching um, to make a book. Um, but the book is published by Sternberg, so if any of this is at all interesting, um, there's six kind of uh, bits of writing in the book that veer off into very different explorations of the territory. Um, what was interesting about the exhibition is that I had a whole real exhibition of the wallpaper, the objects, etc. Um, but I also had, at the back, there was a separate room that you could almost overlook that had the other half of the exhibition, which was a virtual exhibition, where kind of I extended stuff I'd done in previous film works into kind of an immersive virtual reality, looking at where you could actually walk through some of these stories. So I'm just going to play you one of the, uh, the opening scene from the VR. The VR was a sort of series of five stages, but this one is the interior of the Himalayan hotel, which was actually the center of the nest of spies. So basically most of the spies stayed here in the 50s and 60s, and Alexandra David Neal had stayed here in the 10s and 20s. And the Himalayan hotel still exists today. I think it's just been taken over by the Shangri-La hotel chain, but till about a couple of years ago, it was owned and run by the McDonald family. And the McDonald family uh, was Scottish, uh, David McDonald, was the British trade agent in Tibet um, before he retired to Kalimpong in the 1920s to run the hotel full time. That's, uh... The sun can be very strong here in the Himalayas. If you need sunscreen, you should find shops in the town center. Basically, you go on a almost first uh, first-person adventure through the Himalayan hotel, and there's lots of evidence and artifacts from various Everest expeditions, Yeti expeditions, um, other wall hangings, and esoteric paintings that all act as a set of clues that you can either connect the dots or not. Uh, but back to the book. So there's some more pages for the book. I like to kind of. You know, I always like to do a book where possible when when you go into a project kind of of this scale because there's so much research along the way. And and I kind of like it as a... I always like the sort of conversation to kind of throw up new things. So, for example, um, the top uh, black and white image uh, is from Ulrika Ottinger's um, Johanna of Arc of Mongolia. And interestingly, it was a footnote in the first piece of text in the book by Barbara uh, where she, the whole film is about 
past, present, and future kind of converging, and she uses it as a structural device. And it was just very nice to reference that. Um, the bottom, what almost looks like a kid's drawing, is actually um, a hand-drawn illustration from what was then the, the main newspaper in Tibet about the Chinese invasion. And on the right is a Mahakala mask, and Mahakala is, was um, a Hindu god who was appropriated and became a demon in, in esoteric Buddhism. And um, in fact, in the exhibition, there was an image of, of Mahakala before you went into the VR, and the VR was a closed room. This is, this is some views of the exhibition. So that's the final sculpture of Alexandra David Neal on its plinth, gazing out at a painting called Expedition. And I wanted to play, I mean, I always like to have lots of clues in my exhibition. So you can either just enjoy it as a painting, you can enjoy it formally, the play of fabric with canvas, the colorways. But if you want to read more, for me, that painting being called Expedition is that it sort of plays to all the different expeditions that overlap the Everest. Um, the, the Yeti expedition uh, and the expeditions to, to, to supply weapons and, and other supplies to Tibetan gorillas that all kind of overlap, um, overlapped in, in, you know, historically, but uh, also in terms of the whole, the people working on them, etc. This is another view um, of the gallery and some of the other paintings. So interestingly, there's, so you've got expedition, you've got one of the cave paintings, and that, it's maybe, I don't know if it's hard for you to see, but it's a quite abstracted, digitized painting of, of contemporary Kalimpong, where all the houses are built into the hills and mountains. It's, it's just literally a very steep, uh, high-altitude town. That's uh, a neon on the left that was meant to kind of resonate with both um, a 1920s cruise liner and, and a Buddhist temple called Thongsha Gompa in Kalimpong, and you've got the same house painting at the back and the wallpaper extending there just to give you a kind of feeling for, for how the whole show held together in the space. And that's a whole other view of it. So I wanted it from different angles to, be, to, to almost distort your sense of reality. And that's Ekai and Alexandra uh, chatting to each other. And what I also did was with the digital sculpts for the sculptures, they also existed in the virtual reality. So you could actually go into a, um, a secret passageway in the hotel and find a room in which you could find the floating equivalent bust of Alexandra David Neal that you could actually stand inside of. So there was sort of weird correspondences between the virtual and the, and the quote unquote real. And I'm just gonna end on this before taking questions. So this. Uh, is a short clip from scene two um, of the VR. So you've exited the Himalayan hotel into the mountain ranges above Kalimpong following actually the journey of Alexandra David Neal in Barbara's story. And uh, there are strange encounters to be had in the mountain ranges. I'll just, uh, let me get that working. slightly disappointed giving that away in talks because I almost feel you should experience it um, as, a, as a fully immersed experience and have the Yeti really just creep up behind you. But you'll notice there was a whole distortion to the field uh, at a, uh, that's, that's triggered when the Yeti appears. And I was just quite interested in thinking of, of the Yeti. Um, in all the research, the sort of the Yeti almost just seemed like a red herring to all the actual uh, other things that were going on from CIA to to magicians, you know, it almost seemed like the Yeti was a good distraction. And I became quite interested in how that could be uh, coded um, through technology, that the Yeti, in effect, was a kind of glitch and, in a way, disrupted the kind of, I mean, there were other things I coded into the VR to kind of disrupt 
the idea of a seamless reality, but particularly for me, I like this, this Yeti that kind of ruptured the kind of seamlessness of this mountainscape and actually took it back into, a, into the glitch uh, that was, for me, you know, really key. Um, I mean, I'm quite a big fan of 70s new media and video practice, and in the 70s in the sort of New York underground, there was actually quite a, quite a kind of divide between people who were working with, um, with film, what they saw as film proper, and, um, and people who were working with video and new media. And you know, the, the sort of film purists were main criticism of the, the video and new media people was, was the kind of glitches and, um, and the kind of traces um, or artifacts that were kind of that they felt were kind of degraded, and what became interesting was that those very glitches, artifacts became the things that the new media, video practitioners claimed as as a sort of badge of pride, and I quite like this idea that you know any technology it comes with its own set of kind of uh, fault lines, so for me the Yeti became a nice way to reintroduce fault lines in this particular scene, but it's something I was very interested in in kind of thinking about, again, how, how one might consider um, a kind of esoteric notion of, of reality being fiction back into a kind of technological representation of, of reality. So I might end it there and open it up to questions. Thank you very much. Uh, that was an interesting glimpse of a, a fascinating world that you'd uncovered. Forgive me if I go a little bit mundane and technical. How did the audience experience the virtual reality? Yeah. Um, was it, were they wearing headsets? Uh, yeah, I, I, it was on a very practical uh, answer. They were, it was using an HTC Vive. But it was, I mean, it was something I'd been, I'd been, I'd been experimenting with the technology for about three years before I first showed it, um, and kind of partly waiting for the technology to to be able to do what I wanted it to do. Um, you know, I was kind of underwhelmed with the Oculus Rift for those who are interested in in those kind of technologies. The HTC Vive, I don't know if you saw in the first scene I played in the hotel, you can actually have a controller that allows you to kind of. In, you know, to, to be more of an active participant rather than a passive spectator. Um, so th I think that was important, kind of, um, and I was quite lucky in that we got an HTC Vive like about two years before they went on sale to kind of play with. Um, so that was just really nice to be able to play with something that, that not everyone had their hands on, while also looking at what other artists were doing with VR and kind of trying to figure out where I wanted to kind of set some of the parameters. So it was literally like you had this big show of sculptures, painting, wallpaper, um, neon, and then just at the back was a tiny little door. So it's almost like if this was the show, sort of somewhere out there was a tiny little door that was closed, which just had a, all, I, I'd, I'd made a, the, the same image of Mahakala as a kind of surf decal, you know, like a transparent sticker and stuck it on the door. So you'd almost go, why is that kind of sticker there? And then occasionally that door would open and somebody would come out and somebody else could go in and it was one at a time, which was something that I kind of, you know, I'd really been struggling with for a long time, like how to, how to manage the experience. And actually the, the whole VR, it has five stages uh, or it has five um, five. Yeah, five spaces you move through. And actually, there's a sixth hidden one. And for me, there's always, in, in kind of all the projects I do, there's kind of, there's, there's always levels and layers, but there's always a kind of a hidden structure. And, and it's really important to me, you know, uh, and people don't need to even get it, but it's really important for me in how a world is constructed. Uh, so I based the, the six stages uh, on the stages of the Bardo, uh, which is, say, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. There's certain stages of the afterlife that the soul passes through. And while I was 
I, I was, so I was both playing to that while playing to these real factual environments, or at least the first five are real factual. If you get to the sixth, you're in somewhere. And for me, that sort of correspondence was really important to kind of bring the historical narrative, the, the sort of metaphysical narrative, and bring them to bear through the technology, and to make this very kind of simple point that, you know, the virtual has always been with us, but what can the virtual reveal about itself to us, or what can the virtual reveal about the real to us? Um, and so you basically went one in, one out, and you went into this dark room where there was a, actually a projection screen just so people felt a little bit more, a bit, a bit less apprehensive about what they were stepping into. So there was a video screen which showed the interior, the digital interior of the Himalayan hotel. So you'd have a, a handle on what you were stepping into, but then you'd put on your headset and you had your guide. So there were only four people at that exhibition who could take you through it that I'd spent a whole day training to be, um, to be not just uh, a health and safety person or invigilator, but also to be to know intimately all the aspects of every scene that were both visible, invisible, esoteric, practical. And also had, had briefed them all on VR psychology. So they had to be ready to deal with a myriad of personality types who, from people who had never done VR before. But I'm a, bit, I'm a bit obsessive in my detail, so I'd put in lots of things for people for, you know, for even VR developers who, who would be very sophisticated. I broke lots of rules and laws of physics and rules of VR even, um, so that the people who really might you know, want to kind of break the VR couldn't, or, they could, or they'd get shocks or surprises. Um, so I'd really tried to sort of factor in as wide a range of people as possible, but I wanted it to be that intimate relationship where you have a guide. You know, is that a spiritual guide? Is it a practical guide? You know, and it's both. It's a tour guide and a... Um, and I like that idea that it was like an initiation ritual. You walked in, somebody came out, and you went in, and the, your guide closed the door. And you were, you were then having to give yourself to this thing. And can I just ask, is that technology to create the, that virtual environment one that you had to commission or as the artist could is is the is the uh, technology accessible enough for you to make it yourself no i mean i had to work with both a coder and a developer but i think i mean that's where i i don't like to do anything where i don't know uh, i mean i don't know how to code but i do know what you can and can't do with code and I think that's where I'd spend about two, three years in the research, wanting to know what you could do, what other people were doing, not just art, other artists, but commercial applications, et cetera, and just seeing, you know, what... I think one of the wonderful things about being an artist is, is that we break things. No? You know, it's, it's our job to, uh, to kind of fuck with things, no? Um, so... It was just kind of interesting, and the developer and coder I work with are a real kind of counterculture mavericks. I mean, they, they were in a kind of friendship group that connects to sort of people as kind of way off as Jimmy Courty and Alan Moore, to give you an idea of. Uh, and but it, So it became even more of a, a challenge for me and a point of pride to, to fuck with them, because they were, they're kind of quite at an extreme already. And just to create things, you know, what, I think one of the things I always ask, whether I'm working in sculpture, painting, whatever, what, what is the frame? And then how do you, how do you break the frame? How do, you, how do you shift the view? And, you know, in, in the technology, I mean, one of the, you know, thinking about this thing about the glitch, it was really nice to channel the 70s because actually as maverick as the guys I work with are, they were very much in the present of the technology. And... Um, you know, one of the things that's a big no-no in, in, in VR, sorry if I'm getting too technical, and somebody ask a totally non-technical question in a minute, but I'll end on this. One of the no big no-nos in VR is parallax, because it's, it's crap. You know, coders and developers, if, if there's a trace of parallax, get embarrassed. And does anyone know what parallax is in VR? Cool, good, I'll, I'll explain then. Um, so parallax is basically when a scene isn't seamless. 
because it hasn't been properly resolved because you're resolving something in in a in a notional th three-dimensional space but it's not it's it's a two-dimensional space masquerading as a three-dimensional space so when say a simple way to explain it is if you've got a, say you've got a corner two walls meeting and they're not properly resolved they'll if you turn they'll start to sort of dissolve partly into each other and that's a really simple way to explain parallax it doesn't hold it doesn't hold up and so coders and developers avoid parallax like the plague because it's like a badge of shame and i was like how do we make parallax work and one of the scenes um from the mountain scene, you actually go through into the interior of, of one of these caves where these sorcerers work. And, you know, I was, I mean, I love a good B-movie, and I was interested in the interior of the cave being like the interior of a body, like Fantastic Voyage or something like that. So I kind of gainfully employed Parallax in a way that was making the, the coder and developer while I was working with them really squirm. But it, was, it actually worked really beautifully. So you walked into this cave, and it's like you're in a beating kind of artery. Um, because it doesn't, it doesn't resolve, so it's, it feels like it's, it's breathing. Um, and I'm just, you know, it's just that sort of interesting thing. How do, you, how do you take something that's considered bad and make it actually and instrumentalize it? Thank you very much. Yeah. I think you've got a mic coming your way. It sounds as though you're taking... Um, uh, magic uh, as practiced by these guys up in the mountains and translating it into technology. Mm. So I think that sounds like a bit of a cop-out. Mm. What do you think about that? Um, I'd say it's the reverse actually. It's being it's having a really active sense that magic is not either technological or non-technological. It's actually how to make, uh, I mean, I, I just, I would say I'm sort of practicing magic every day. And it's very much part of my, my thought process and my working method. Uh, I don't think I'm just translating it into technology. No, it's using technology to instrumentalize magic. I don't think it's, it's, it's as black and white as that. Okay, thank you. Can I ask how that commission, for example, came to you? Or? Um, I think it had been in, I mean, in some ways it's hard to say with this project how, you know, I mean, my projects generally kind of take a long time to gestate and develop, but this one, you know, did it begin when I was 15 and reading Alexandra David Neal's book? It was a really unusually long one in terms of where it started. Uh, you know, usually my projects are about maybe two to five years as a process, so I'm not being glib, I'm just sort of saying this one was a really, really oddly personal one. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't commissioned in a sense, it was a project I wanted to do, and I was, I was taking it round, you know, like you do as an artist, you have a project or an idea for a project and you, you try to sh sort of shop it around and see you know, who's interested or might be interested, who bites, really. And um, I was actually talking to um, institutions about it at first. There was an institution in India that were maybe going to do it, but then they didn't have the, f the funding, and there was other complications, as there are always, you know, the amount of projects that, you know, they take a long time, I think, sometimes for your own process, and sometimes just because it's so hard to find the, the wherewithal to make to get, you know, to find an external form for something. Um, so this wasn't exactly commissioned. I had the project and then actually my London gallery, Timothy Taylor, for my, it was, I'd only joined them a year before and they said, for your first show with us, we'd like to do something quite radical. What are you working on? I said, well, there's this thing I'm developing with this Indian museum. And they said, why don't you do it here? And I was like, I don't think it's for you. And they went, no, no, try us. And I was like, okay. And they were like, we, you know, we know you love doing books, so we assume you're going to do a book with this. And I was like, yeah, uh, where do we get the funding? And they went, okay, how much is it going to cost? And I was like, this. And they went, okay, we can do that. And I was like, okay, that's a, you know, it was, it was very, I thought it was very generous and very kind of bold for a commercial gallery to kind of support something quite so left field. Um, 
and particularly with the book, because, you know, I I'm just tend to be suspicious. It's quite in my nature. And I turned around and I said, well, you know, you do realize that I only, I only do books where I keep absolute creative control because they're part of the process. And, and they went, oh, but will it be kind of in the vein of, and they named two previous books I'd done, and they were two books I'd previously had full creative control. And I went, yes. And they went, oh, well, that's fine then. Um, I think that's also the useful thing about having successfully pulled something off before. You know, you, you sort of, people trust you to kind of, to do it your way, but that it'll come good. Uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that, that only comes with time, isn't it? That people um, trust you or that you've got something to show and say, look, I can do this. And, you know, it's, I guess over time, the books that I've had creative control over are kind of, the ones that are kind of, you know, uh, are out of print and you find on Amazon for a lot of money and the ones that I haven't are sort of remaindered and you can buy them for half price. So it's kind of like, yeah, I think there's something about artists' books are just, you know, you can tell the difference immediately between a book that an artist has really put, you know, put sweat and kind of soul into rather than a, a kind of institutional monograph that's a bit dull. Hi. Um, so yeah, like the, the your love of um, like topic and research was really clear, and I'm just wondering how you um, you know how you were getting these archives and information um, about Kelimpong and all, all the extra kind of did you go to like the British Library or, or like old archive places or something? Uh, British Library. I mean, over over kind of years of researching kind of certain topics as well, I kind of. Um, and um, you know, I've I've got a sort of academic post as well. But over years of researching this kind of stuff, there are specific libraries, even internationally, where I know people or or kind of um, specialists in certain fields. So I guess you know it's become easier over time. Yeah. Um, there's sort of people I can go and go. Do you have access to this? Um, but also, I think, you know, if you know what you're looking for, it's also easier to kind of broker those conversations. And, and, and then there's also just a certain amount of serendipity, yeah. you know, where you just get lucky and you, you just happen to have a conversation with somebody and, um, you know, um, I, was, I was talking to, to a lady who, who um, runs a sort of foundation in India and she knew somebody a much older gentleman who was in his 70s who was a general in the Indian Army. And she knew him through some kind of convoluted family connection, but he had been a, a, a lieutenant or something in the garrison at Kalimpong during the Cold War. And, you know, you just sort of, I don't know, it's weirdly, given the way I've worked, I come to anticipate meetings like that. Actually, if I don't sort of stumble into some sort of bizarre meeting like that, I almost start to get worried that a project is not kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not got legs. <laughs> uh, did you find that like things, yeah, sort of start like uh, almost coming to you when you're looking at something? Like it just. I think there's a certain, when you sort of, I mean, it's like I was saying as a kind of probably long-winded answer to a previous question, you know, I mean, you know, I'd been looking into this whole, whole you know, I, or I hadn't been looking into it, you know, I only kind of made this, Kalimpong only came back into my consciousness 20 years after it first did, and it was only then it started to kind of take shape in my head that this might be a project. And you know, and even then, it's still not then. It's only when there's a certain. It's almost like you cross an invisible threshold, and then you're in it. You know, you're 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 determined to make uh, this thing, whatever whatever. You know, you you don't necessarily know the final form, but you're you kind of you've you've committed, and then. You know, then I, it's usually only at that point I find you start to have sort of chance meetings or a conversation you have leads to a kind of um, an unexpected uh, introduction to somebody who can point you further along. Yeah. Um, and then somebody will say, what about this? Or have you thought about that person? And, you know, um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a great range of... Um, there's a great range of essays in the book. I mean, even one of them was, one of them which has the least to do with Kalimpong 
um, is by a writer I was introduced to by another friend, and this writer is called Alexander Keefe. He's based in Los Angeles, and he'd been researching for ages um, a guy who I, I got to know about through these two called Sridhar Bapat, who was an Indian guy from quite a wealthy family who'd been sent to boarding school in Switzerland and then ended up sort of um, possibly kind of similar to me, letting down his sort of family's hopes for him. Um, and he ended up sort of bumming around the, the East Village in New York uh, it, when the, the, uh, the you know, New Media Underground was just starting. And he ended up being a technician at the kitchen in New York and actually was, uh, helped Namjoon Pike with his first few you know, major video installations. And there was this whole story of how India had got into the New York Underground. And this, I was already thinking about the glitch as how to kind of address um, uh, ideas in, in the VR and to kind of also address ideas of thresholds and borders. So um, it just became this sort of fascinating story that this Indian guy was involved in, uh, in the kitchen and working with Namjoon Pike and, and it turned out had made this supposedly one iconic video work himself called Aleph Null which had disappeared from, you know, nobody would seen it since the 70s. And um, weirdly Stuart Comer, um, this, and Obviously, this book was in process a long while. Um, so partway through the process, it turned out that Stuart Comer, who is sort of film curator um, at uh, MoMA in New York, found and restored Alef Null while we were putting the book together. So there was just, you know, which has nothing to do with me. I mean, he was doing that totally independently. But it was just sort of, you know, weird how it came together. And... Um, and you know, then there was this weird thing because one of the things we were also kind of riffing on um, in 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 the VR was this idea of snow. You know, because snow was an artifact in in early video, um, and how that would then impact with how we would think about snow and the glitch and other things. And it and it turned out that Sridhar Bapat, this this guy who made Olaf Null and worked with Namjoon Pike, uh, sad really sadly he he died of alcoholism in New York, finally, and he became a street drunk. And he ended up living in the tunnels under the Bowery where there were these, where, um, you know, there was um, weird vents for the air conditioning in New York which gave out uh, really carcinogenic particles that fell, that looked like snow. And there was this weird, you know, sort of double take where you think, oh my God, we've just been following the, the path of this guy and he's died because of snow and we're thinking of it there as just a conceptual device. And then, you know, you start to kind of, you know, the sort of weird ethics kind of, ma and the kind of, you know, magic of how these things connect and disrupt. Um, and there's almost just different fields at work. And that, you know, it just starts to, you have to sort of think about how you adapt to and incorporate those things along the way and what those generate in terms of further ideas, corrections, adjustments, that, that kind of, you know, you know, so there's sort of serendipity, but it also comes with challenges and, and ways to sort of rethink how it's all going. Thank you. Um, Sadly not. I mean, that's also where, you know, to maybe answer your question, it would be, you know, your previous question, it would be really quite something to experience it, to think about how magic is, is and technology are kind of thought of in relation to each other. Um, no, it was in London last September, October. It will be um, in Rotterdam, I think, uh, from the 9th of February for a few months, I think. Um, and then it's due to be in in New York next next year, next spring. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's also where you know you sh you show the clips to give people an approximation, but it's only sadly an approximation. Would you like to know? Yeah. Um, well, I guess 
I tend to work in kind of bodies because it's the sort of research that really kind of I find informs and gives a sort of depth to all the work, whether it's the painting, the sculpture, um, you know, VR. I also work with, uh, you know, this was actually my first VR piece that I'd shown. I'd, I've worked a lot in, in kind of more experimental film and video before that. Uh, there's always this kind of, you know, research element, but I'm also interested in parallel realities, this idea of, of time past, time future. So I'm, I'm always interested in, um, in what lies just beyond our range of vision or what sort of possibilities, speculative possibilities. So I've worked with, you know, science fiction quite a bit um, from, um, there's a sort of film I did a, in 2014 in, in southern Morocco, but it was looking at notions of sort of anthropology and, uh, and the whole, uh, and indigeneity and, you know, it was, it had kind of astronauts coming out of the sea and and meeting a kind of post-apocalyptic uh, tribe that could have been from early humanity or post-apocalyptic humanity. And I like to sort of play with that, but I was also thinking about, you know, uh, ancient astronaut theory. I don't know if you've come across that. Um, you know, it's quite hokey, but it's, um, but it's kind of happened cyclically. Eric von Daniken wrote this sort of bestseller in the 70s called Chariots of the Gods where he connected, there's a, there's a really kind of quite, quite wonderfully hokey documentary they made of it in the 70s as well, which you can find in fragments on YouTube with some kind of quite great synth, synth, synth music. Um, but he was looking at um, everything from Renaissance painting to Mayan sculpture as possible traces of ancient advanced races having been, had a huge influence on the development of human civilization. And then I'd, I'd sort of been interested in his books from when I was a kid, but weirdly, um, in the British Museum, there was a, I, I stumbled upon a set of objects that were collected in the 18th century by various uh, British aristocrats, that, and they assembled all these objects from sort of um, Mexico, India, and Egypt, and, were, and looked at the sort of, and were came up with this whole theory, there was a whole sort of cabal of them who came up with this theory that you've got very similar kind of religious iconography in all three of those ancient civilizations, and that in a way they formed a kind of Bermuda Triangle for kind of world myth and religions. Um, and they kind of came up, they didn't think it was astronauts, they thought it was Phoenician tradesmen who connected it all, but there's all, there, I, I'm quite interested in in kind of theories and belief systems that people sort of put forward to kind of make sense of the world, to try and simplify and reduce it, but then how those systems themselves kind of, you know, almost how Christianity schisms into a hundred different creeds. You know, it's, you try and create a sort of a system that kind of, uh, that makes understanding clearer and then that system itself breaks down or, or fragments. So I'm really interested in, in those kind of, in these sort of, going into these narratives, but then also seeing the fault lines where they start to disperse again. Don't know if that makes sense at all. Um, you, you seem to deal with these sort of systems that you're talking about in quite a figurative way, is that right? Yeah, I think both figurative and sort of metaphorical sometimes. But yeah, I'm quite, I'm not frightened of the figurative or the narrative. I, th I think, you know, um, I think they're really sort of interesting kind of terms, you know, because they can be really problematic terms. I, I sort of quite like to kind of, um, I think also sometimes because I'm trying to kind of look at some of these systems from different angles to keep a certain quality of figuration allows those sort of layers to kind of be to be read if that makes and did you start out doing film and video initially then or have I've, you always done everything i've sort of moved around a lot i think i started drawing and painting but i was also making experimental video and ha you know and editing it myself you know even at my first year at college um, and I sort so of. So, did you learn from doing that then? What, can you remember what you learned from that sort of experimentation with video work that's gone into your work now? Very much about time. I think there was sort of something about. I mean, I was lucky enough, or I don't know if it's lucky, but, you know, 
when I was at college, you were still just sort of splicing videotape. And something about that, you know, just gave you such a hands-on ability to think about about time, literally time, time passed in that this was what you shot at, at 10 a.m. and this is what you shot at 2 p.m. and you could just move them about. And, you know, it's just, I think you can start from really basic kind of vectors like that to make quite complex, um, you know, worlds, um, or, or just make things sit on top of each other in different ways. And you sort of, you can start to kind of, uh, yeah, just start to layer things up. So you still kind of working in montage, really, yeah. with paintings and sculpture and things. They're all kind of montaged together in a way, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and they really do reference each other. And I'll, I'll often be, um, yeah, it's, it's, as, it's as simple as sometimes I'll be, I'll come off a film shoot and want to get straight back into the studio to paint because it's, I've thought of different ways of kind of, you know, uh, messing with the frame or an idea of time delay in painting or what, what paint might do. And literally sometimes a set of paintings will give me a whole different idea of how to montage or edit film. And it, it, it really is that, often that, that direct, the way they kind of influence each other. Get a drink. <laughs> oh, one more. I'm I'm interested in your relationship with Neon to hear more about it. Um, with Neon, um, there's a few ways I guess I could answer that. Um, you know, I. Um, I spent part of my childhood in uh, in Karachi in Pakistan, and um, you know it, it's quite a neon-rich city, or it, it particularly was when I in the you know uh, when I was a kid there in the late 70s, early 80s. It was very neon-rich, and I think what I was really kind of fascinated by was that neon could be both uh, sacred and profane. So you'd have you had these quite amazing. There's um, uh, the sort of patron Sufi saint of Karachi uh, was a man called uh, uh, Abdullah Shah Ghazi and his mausoleum is sort of um, in Clifton by the sea um, at the sort of um, um, on the coast uh, right by the literally by the sea in Karachi right by the, the, the beaches on the water and it's this crazy mausoleum which is totally lit up with really zingy red and green neon at night um, and it you know it was somewhere you used to kind of uh, and basically his devotees would just spend all night there singing kind of uh, kavalis which are kind of Sufi kind of mystical songs and and literally you know um, it was sort of famous for kind of uh, pot and opium so you'd have all these devotees getting really high there all night under this garish neon, and it was somewhere that your parents warned you not to go, and yet you were really fascinated to kind of sneak out there after dark and see the goings-on. And, and, you know, and it was just kind of, it was like the sort of, it was like a little microcosm of the universe. You know, there'd be wild dogs running about, um, you know, somebody totally high as a kite, dancing about in either in religious ecstasy or just because they were totally bombed out you know and it was just this kind of and then opposite that you'd have the sort of other neons for the late night kebab vendor and it was just it was just this whole kind of um, crazy universe of neon where neon was both something kind of spiritual and something you know and the kebab or maybe vice versa you know it was just and so I guess neon always had that kind of early imprint that it kind of it spoke to the the highest and the lowest and I kind of really like, you know, I like that on a really personal level. And I guess it obviously had a quite an impact on me. And then I've always just been interested in uh, in how neon can be used to disrupt your visual field. So I'm quite kind of, you know, I'll just I'll spend ages designing loads of neons and drawing doing drawings of neons that end up in the bin before I find one that's often really simple, but it's really right. And then you know, testing out particular colorways. And you know, with neon, you can either you can use colored glass. It's always a mix of, of glass and gas. 
and you can use a clear glass with a gas or you can use a colored glass and a gas to get different tones. Uh, so you're, you know, I'm often sort of experimenting with what certain tones do as a kind of retinal effect. And, and, but then I'll, sometimes I'll even c combine neon with sort of painting directly on the wall and thinking about the tonal separation. And, and it, you know, it goes through the paintings as well. It's, it's very much about thinking about things, how things operate in space. Um, space not being just the literal space they occupy, but the way they extend into space. It's, you know, in that way, it's not very different from how I think about the films or the paintings. But particularly with, you know, the neon, it's what I try to do with the wallpaper as well, with the kind of printing technique that would try and have, um, I guess it's parallax in warp, in, in tone and, and, and light, you know, what that, what that does. If you get the, the right two tones set against each other, foreground and rear ground, it, it disrupts, it will have a different kind of impact on your visual field. And, you know, the simplest way is sometimes you'll take, um, you'll take the shape of a neon as a sort of corona and it will, you know, it will sit on top of everything else you see for like a minute or two afterwards. So I'm often experimenting with that, like I'll often have a neon at the entrance to a show so that it kind of, it disrupts your visual field, you know, as you enter. I, I'm quite interested in that idea of threshold, so whether it's the threshold where you enter a gallery, I mean, particularly in this show, to go back to it, since we've seen pictures, like the neon was right as you entered the door and it was just quite, you know, I really sort of experimented with the distance between the viewer and the neon, what it would do to them and to the, their sense of space. Um, so that was almost the first threshold on entering the gallery and then there's another threshold when you go into the VR and then obviously there's a threshold when you exit the VR and go back into the gallery and actually the VR is more narrative than the work in the gallery so which is virtual and which is, you know, I was just interested to take some of those terms to task. I think, you know, it's also it's, I, I think it's always just sort of worth considering when um, that a gallery is an artificial setup and that as soon as you're asking somebody to step into a gallery, you're asking them to kind of commit to a certain threshold moment and what are you doing to kind of enact that relationship? Thank you. Are we done? We can always reconvene in the bar. Thank, thank you very much.